Hello and welcome to Velina's talk on Russia's war against Ukraine. My guest today is Bruno Massage, uh, who has been Europe Minister in the Portuguese government between 2013 and 2015, and is uh, also a regular commentator on international media platforms, currently also a columnist for the New Statesman. He has written several best-selling books on international affairs and global order, including The Dawn of Eurasia. Um, and uh, the most uh, recent one is uh, Geopolitics for the End Time, From the Pandemic to the Climate Crisis, uh, which I also would like to cover with Bruno. Bruno, welcome. Pleasure to be here, Valina. Great talking to you. Thank you very much uh, for being with me. I would like to uh, dedicate this talk to the war that Russia launched against Ukraine, a full-fledged war, a comprehensive full-scale reinvasion of Ukraine from all directions. And I would like, first and foremost, since we are not military, we are not military experts, we can, of course, comment on uh, the course of uh, the war and the actions, but I would like to hear first and foremost your anticipation for uh, the course of uh, the events. How do you also assess uh, Ukrainian response so far, uh, but also uh, Russian actions? And could you give us your thoughts also on uh, Putin's mindset? What do you think he's trying to achieve with this war? Hi, good morning. Uh, yes, you, you, you're quite correct. We're, we're not military analysts, but um, I don't think that should stop us from, from trying to apply um, our understanding of politics and geopolitics, which is just as important or perhaps more important than the military angle. And it's what provides the context and the background for, for the military angle. What do I think is happening? Um, you know, I will try on social media. I've been sometimes a bit, bit emotional about this crisis. I'll try here as a warning to be clinical and scientific. Um, and perhaps that might sound shocking at times. Uh, I think we, what we have here is in the end, uh, we're in a moment where American power is receding. Um, crisis of, 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 of American power. Uh, in large measure because American power was so pervasive and extraordinary for, for a few decades and that situation could, could not continue. I guess many of us assumed that would be the world uh, as it would exist forever, but, but it wasn't. Um, America was responsible for half of the world's GDP after World War II and now it's responsible for 22 or 23%. And we see these dynamics of recession of American power in many parts of the world, uh, but in Europe as well. And once American power is receding, it creates something of a vacuum, which Putin is exploring and is trying to fill. The situation in Europe, uh, I think, might have been predicted at a very high level of generality and abstraction. Uh, I'm not convinced that you need to have a full understanding of Putin's psychology or a full understanding of Russian history. To me, as an analyst, it almost seems that knowing that American power is receding, 
uh, knowing that um, Putin had 20 years to consolidate and uh, reinforce uh, Russian power after a deep crisis. Um, knowing that European power is still to be born, particularly on the military and, and defense dimensions. It is obvious to see that sooner or later you would have a vacuum developing in Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe, and that would lead in some form or another to conflict. Uh, that's the clinical analytical part of the issue. Uh, then uh, um, there's, a, there's a more shocking part to, to our moral conscience. Uh, Putin has decided, uh, in this case, influenced by history and even by authors that he's read, uh, he's decided that Ukraine is really the largest and, 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 and most continuous uh, threats to the Russian world. Uh, and this is not something of the last 10 years. Uh, it is true that Ukraine in the last 10 years started to Europeanize very fast. Uh, Kiev started to look like a vibrant European city and all this was a threat. But it's not just the last 10 years. Uh, one could even speculate that throughout the centuries, Ukraine was always uh, that part uh, of uh, Eastern Europe and of the Russian Empire later that felt closer to, to Europe, uh, starting even from the Middle Ages, where uh, Kiev was, uh, in many respects, a, a, a cultural reflection of Byzantium and, and, and therefore still of the Roman Empire. It, it is a different world throughout the centuries. And many authors, including authors that Putin likes a lot, always saw Ukraine as a kind of... Uh, um, a, a, a threat, a ghost, the image of what a westernized Russia could become. So in all those debates about how Russia had to resist westernization, Ukraine featured prominently as a threat. And Putin has embraced all that. Uh, and it's of course uh, terrible because the consequences are essentially what I believe could be called a war of genocide because, and I'm surprised people don't talk about this, because in all his statements, going back to the essay last summer, he has said very clearly that the Ukrainian people does not exist and therefore it has to be destroyed, that fundamentally it doesn't exist and what we have now is some kind of aberration and we have to correct the aberration by destroying not only the Ukrainian state but Ukrainian nationhood and once you announce that you're going to use military means to destroy a people not to destroy physically every individual, but to destroy its existence as a people. And therefore, practically, you either assimilate to Russia or you are physically destroyed. Uh, this, I think, deserves the name of genocide. Uh, and therefore, we have the uh, unfortunate circumstance that a geopolitical crisis has also developed within a brutal war of genocide. Um, there are geopolitical reasons why this is happening, but Putin, instead of giving it a geopolitical color, he has given it a, 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 a cultural, national, and eliminationist color uh, that, of course, has uh, shocked uh, many of us. There was no doubt in my mind that the final goal of uh, Putin was the complete subjugation of Ukraine. However, I uh, was anticipating a kind of um, 
long-term approach to Ukraine. That means probably several phases in which uh, Russia would make a move uh, militarily on Ukraine. And in the meantime, Ukraine would uh, have the time to uh, prepare accordingly. And this is unfortunately not the case. And as you say, also uh, the very existence of Ukraine, not just as a sovereign country, Um, or as a freedom-loving nation, but also uh, as a symbol um, is now being denied by the Russian president. Um, And that means that he wants to decide over the fate of a whole country. Do you think that if successful, he would make a move on other countries as well? So it would go beyond the borders of Ukraine and it would entail a kind of revisionist imperialist mindset where the Russian president would actually consider uh, redrawing a European map and uh, reshaping the European security architecture. How do you see this in the European context? Right, I think I have a somewhat more nuanced view on that. I, I, I don't think he clearly will draw a line between what is non-NATO countries and NATO countries. I don't think he's even, even if he wanted to, it, but he doesn't want to because he sees NATO as the linchpin of the existing order that he wants to destroy. But even if you wanted to, let us say, leave NATO entirely alone, these crises have dynamics that you can't completely control. So I think there will be threats to NATO itself. Uh, but I obviously also don't think that he will now overrun the whole of Eastern and Central Europe uh, simply because uh, Russia is uh, today uh, uh, still a, a diminished power <coughs> with limited resources to do that. He, he will not be able to permanently occupy Ukraine, let alone do um, um, something more ambitious, but you have to point out that you will certainly be wanting to create trouble within NATO um, uh, because that's also where his leverage comes from. He will be very inclined to create trouble in the Balkans, particularly in Bosnia. Uh, As the dynamic becomes one of open conflict between Europe and and Russia, we have to be prepared for all kinds of uh, attempts to destabilize Europe from within. Not that the Russian army will invade Poland, but that there will be many attempts to destabilize Europe from within where some weak spots can be detected. And then you have the dynamics proper to a conflict of this kind. So just to give an example, we're not to abstract. Uh, imagine within a few months, so perhaps uh, Ukraine will be partitioned uh, into an Eastern uh, Russian controlled uh, Eastern Ukraine and a Western controlled independent Ukraine. Uh, a little bit uh, in the image of, uh, of uh, those partitions during the Cold War in Germany and Korea. That's a, a very plausible scenario. Um, and then uh, you have some kind of insurgency developing in Western Ukraine, uh, or even if there's no formal partition, if the insurgency is concentrated in Western Ukraine, we know very well, I think you know that even better than me, many European countries, particularly Poland, will be trying to help Ukraine, uh, not just because they feel close to Ukraine, but because Poland feels that the Russia has to be resisted now and not later. And therefore there's enormous potential here for, for conflict of different kinds. Uh, if weapons are being supplied through the Polish border to Ukraine, uh, to what extent 
would Russia, Kremlin, Putin be able to tolerate this? Would there be some limited attacks on Poland to try to make it stop? The potential for catastrophic consequences you know, is now almost unlimited of this kind. So if people have the kind of naive view that this only concerns Ukraine, no, I disagree with that. But if people think uh, within two years, the Russian army will be in Berlin, I also don't think that's the case. Uh, it's gonna be something in the middle. You have been a Europe minister, so you are very much aware of uh, the complex process of decision-making uh, within uh, Europe. Uh, that means on the one side, European institutions, on the other side, the role of uh, member states. How do you assess uh, the European reactions, the European response? Is it a watershed moment for the European security and defense policy as it was described by many um, experts and analysts? And what would you do in addition uh, if uh, you think that what we are doing currently is not uh, enough uh, to support Ukraine uh, in uh, the war and also to help Ukraine sustain <coughs> long, prolonged, uh, prolonged uh, full-scale war? by Russia? Yes, I, I think the reaction is uh, what I would have expected. Uh, there's often a lot of uh, unfair comments in the public debate about the EU, that the EU is feckless, unable to take decisions, uh, morally compromised, morally corrupt, and so on. All, all that is absurd. The, the problem with the EU that we know very well is just a, a huge amounts of inertia, that it's very difficult to move it from one settled position to a different settled position. By the way, when you move to the new settled position, it's very difficult to go back. That should also be taken into account now, that it's gonna be very difficult for the EU to go back to its Russia policy uh, prior to the crisis. Uh, so we saw the inertia broke down. It broke down because of the shock, uh, particularly the first night of bombing in of civilian targets in Kiev two or, or three nights ago. Uh, when you woke up, it was a different EU and it was difficult to, easy to predict that the reaction would be what it was. It was a tough, uh, decisive, uh, resolute reaction uh, that I think uh, no one uh, is criticizing anymore. Uh, after all, we have Luxembourg providing anti-tank uh, uh, missiles to Ukraine, which is something that the US has been very reluctant to do. Therefore, we now have Luxembourg being bolder and more affirmative in its support of Ukraine with military supplies than the United States. So I don't think is any, anyone will be inclined to say that Europe is feckless and unable to support Ukraine. I think we want a little more from Washington than we have now, but uh, Brussels is re reacting well. There's still some things to be done, but not many left. Unfortunately, we did lose a lot of time. Um, all this is gonna be important for the future to protect our borders in the East. I, like many people, have a certain level of anxiety that it comes late for Ukraine, but we will see. Uh, and finally, interestingly, many people were asking for institutional reforms of our foreign security policy. And, like often when it comes to the EU, it seems that those institutional reforms are not really that necessary because when the emergency arrived, you very quickly find institutional tools and powers to act collectively. So I'm more and more convinced that in the end, um, we shouldn't be so focused on institutional 
design and be a bit more focused on the, on the politics uh, of different situations. The, the critical question was not to reform foreign and security policy in the EU. The critical question over the last 10 years was to convince decision makers, particularly a good number of them that live on a different planet, to convince them of what the threat was, that it was mounting, that it was growing. So it's a political deficit, not an institutional deficit. And in the end, we may even be inclined to conclude that Europe already exists as a kind of a political union already. Is it sometimes it's dormant because there is nothing to do. There isn't a crisis, an emergency to react to. But when the crisis and the emergency arrives, the EU is quite able to act as a collective body uh, with a little problem of your neighbor there in Hungary that continues to uh, profoundly uh, um, disappoint its European vocation. Well, by launching a war against Ukraine, uh, Russia, in fact, lost uh, its uh, um, most significant ally in Europe, which was uh, Germany. Germany made a move on uh, the swift uh, restrictions uh, when it comes to Russia's participation, uh, put uh, Nord Stream 2 on hold and also... Uh, decided uh, to provide military assistance. So in a sense, do you think that also the German-French engine of the European integration, once the presidential elections uh, are over in France in April this year, that this French-German engine will operate uh, differently following the Merkel era? And also, do you see a realistic chance for European uh, Union membership uh, perspective for Ukraine, since um, uh, several member states, mostly from Central Eastern European countries, uh, have already announced their support for such membership perspective? What is your take on that? I think the uh, candidate status can be approved uh, <coughs> very quickly. Um, but obviously that doesn't mean membership and membership uh, negotiations always take uh, many, many years, not to say more than a decade uh, or two in some cases. And uh, obviously that would be the case for Ukraine um, because the process is even more complicated. Uh, that's not what's on the table. <coughs> what's on the table is offering a perspective and offering a certain vision for the future and uh, making Ukrainians believe that uh, this will be the future for Ukraine. It will be very important, I think, psychologically, um, particularly in this dark moment when many people, not openly, but secret in their, in their hearts, uh, uh, entertain doubts about the future of Ukraine and fears about whether Ukraine would survive. Uh, to be able to, to, to say publicly, to affirm public, not only will it survive, but we, we believe so much that it will survive that we are willing to grant it a, a candidate status. Um, because after all, if we didn't believe that Ukraine would survive, we would not do that. That's the kind of political and psychological dynamics that I think one should try to um, uh, use here by, by doing that. But and the process will be long and, uh, and difficult. Um, yes, we saw extraordinary levels of unity, again, with the exception of Hungary. I just saw the uh, Germany and Poland and uh, France and uh, Luxembourg and Spain really working together with a single goal. 
uh, it was uh, quite extraordinary. And even the problems with Poland disappeared suddenly because there was a, a bigger threat here. Uh, yes, it will be exciting work uh, in the next few years uh, to try to develop this, to give it flesh. Um, I think we're going to see a different Germany and the impact of that will be quite dramatic. I always thought Germany would wake up um, because, uh, you know, when I talked to German officials in the past, it was never the case that they said Russia is a threat, but we can do nothing about it. What they always said was, we don't think Russia is a threat. But everyone uh, who knows Germany knows that the system would quickly change if this assessment changed. And once those same officials concluded that Russia is a threat, and obviously Germany will be very quickly able to become uh, a different kind of actor in defense and foreign policy. They have the political, technical, uh, administrative, technological resources uh, to quickly respond to the situation. Part of the complacency that you always find in Germany comes up precisely of the sense they have that if things become more difficult, we will be able to respond. Uh, it comes out of a certain sense of, of self-confidence, uh, which may be excessive. And in this case, unfortunately, I do think should have been done much earlier. And, uh, the result, the outcome for Ukraine would be very different, but also for Europe, uh, because when you react later, then you have to deal with a much bigger problem than if you had reacted earlier. I think that this uh, attitude, um, if you want peace, prepare for war, um, very strict realpolitik uh, attitude uh, in geopolitical terms is now also coming, um, kind of coming to Europe where European capitals do realize that they need to do more in the European defense. Let's take a look at the global system. Let's put these uh, events in the global context. Um, you said uh, already a little bit about uh, America. How do you assess uh, the American uh, role um, on the old continent? Do you also anticipate an American retreat as some security aspects experts are already pointing to due to the shifting uh, focus on the Indo-Pacific and East Asia and the systemic competition with China. Do you see this? Do you anticipate this American retreat from the old continent? And finally, do you think that Russia may become or will become a Chinese, a kind of Chinese satellite due to the consequences uh, of um, uh, Russia's war against Ukraine? That means uh, what I've been outlining as a dragon bear, a kind of uh, asymmetric uh, relationship where Russia is a junior partner in this and is uh, um, fulfilling special uh, tasks and roles for uh, China. And in the long term, I wouldn't even exclude for Russia to become a kind of a global mercenary power for Chinese geoeconomic interests. So what is your take on Russia becoming Chinese satellite in the future? Okay, let me start with that, then I turn to America. Uh, I, I do think that's almost irresistible. Uh, okay, sometimes in social media, I may put it a bit bluntly, but um, there's uh, some qualifications and the process never moves in a linear way. And there's a lot of zigzagging, but in the end, uh, Russia was already a, turning into an underdeveloped economy. Uh, outside the military sector, and even then in the military sector, uh, not in a, in a fully convincing way. 
Russia was becoming an underdeveloped economy with little access to the sources of technological growth, which is accelerating and Russia has no ability to respond to this. Uh, an economy fully dependent on fossil fuels and you know, sooner or later fossil fuels are, are not gonna be at the center of our economies. So the situation was uh, desperate enough uh, from an economic point of view. And now I think it's uh, uh, catastrophic uh, because uh, without access to the West, without any access to the West, without any access to Western capital, without any access to Western technology. It looks to me, I'm open to being contradicted here, but it looks to me that uh, Russia will, will have to turn to China and quickly and, and completely. Uh, it's where they're gonna find even some basic uh, uh, access to, to technological goods that it needs, uh, where it will find capital that it desperately needs. Uh, and China plays this very well. Uh, China is, is masterful in the way that it uses uh, vulnerable positions of other countries to drive a hard bargain. Uh, so I think that's what we're going to see. Uh, I'm not convinced it will be a dragon bear because it looks more to me like just a dragon expanding its wings towards uh, uh, Russia. Uh, now, there's still a certain political culture among the older people, among people of Putin's generation of uh, Russian nationalism and a certain suspicious of China. But give it another five, 10 years, these people will disappear. Sergei Karaganovs and others will, they're 70, they will be gone and Putin will be gone. And at that point, precisely uh, when Putin will be gone, let's say in 10 years time, I think Russia's vulnerability to China will be extreme. And I, I do think Chinese uh, decision makers are salivating at this possibility. I just don't see any other alternative than an effective absorption by China, by, by, by China, of Russia by China. Uh, one could try to make a parallel to Britain and the United States at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, I'm sure in 1910, Britain still looked like the most, the more, the more active and adventurous and bolder uh, of the two, uh, capable of deploying an army anywhere in the world and winning wars. But anyone who could see knew that eventually Britain would become part of the American world. And I think with all due distinctions, not comparing the two, just comparing one precise point, uh, <clears throat> that uh, we see something similar here, that uh, perhaps uh, Russia still now looks uh, more capable militarily and more adventurous. But uh, in the end, I think the die have been cast and uh, we, we, we should expect to see uh, an absorption. And, you know, in the long flow of history, we're, we're getting back to, to something like the Mongol Empire. Uh, and, uh, and that's the way it is. Uh, Russia will not disappear, but uh, when historians write about the 21st century, they will write about the Russia's Chinese center, uh, I would think. I like to speculate in those terms, uh, uh, and, and, and it seems plausible to me. Very quickly on the US, well, you know, the Biden administration has been careful not to be dragged into the conflict, trying to stay away because the conviction is save your resources for the confrontation with China. This is a dangerous situation. We can find ourselves into a very delicate confrontation with Russia. Let's try to avoid it. <coughs> I've been disappointed, I have to say. Uh, I do think, I'd like to discuss this with military experts, but I, I do think there's been a dramatic loss and decline in military culture in the US. Um, 
that was present in Afghanistan, but present also here. Um, why is the discussion always posed in terms, in binary terms of either going to war with Russia or not doing anything at all, including not having an embassy? Um, why isn't, isn't, isn't there an art of war where you are able to manage the risks, you are able to deploy your forces cautiously and carefully in creative ways uh, to block someone else's power? The comparison here is, is to Turkey, I think. Turkey is a NATO member. There's always the danger of a conflict with Russia that could escalate into something very dangerous. But yet what we saw over the past few years was Turkey saw what Russia was becoming, saw the threat to Turkish interests from Russia. And how did it deal with them? Not going to war with Russia, but also not retreating. Usually it was a very interesting dance where uh, Turkey would deploy troops to the same places where Russian troops were deployed, not to fight Russian troops, but to sit beside them. And this was misunderstood in the West as a kind of alliance. It was the opposite. Turkish troops were moving into those places to contain and restrain Russian troops and to balance their power. Now, can't the US do anything at all along these lines? Can't it, couldn't it have been present in Ukraine and not leave? and make it very clear to Russia, we are not looking for a war, we're not looking for a conflict. In fact, we want to avoid it. But it just so happens that we have these deployments here uh, of a thousand Marines and they are gonna stay in Kiev because they are guarding our embassy. Uh, and maybe Russia would attack Kharkiv, but it wouldn't attack Kiev because there's a thousand Marines there. I'm not a military expert, but as, a, as someone who, who I think understands a little bit of politics and psychology, this would seem to make sense and I'm shocked and surprised at how now American decision makers seem to be able to deploy military power. It's uh, either a kind of universal project of uh, democracy promotion or then nothing at all but the kind of surgical, limited, strategic, tactical, cautious um, deployment of military power seems to be absolutely beyond the capacity or the dreams of those people making decisions in Washington and the Pentagon. There is indeed a kind of a lack of imagination right now to see the world uh, outside of this binary um, understanding, also this kind of two-front scenario thinking that is emerging right now to compare, <clears throat> excuse me, to compare Russia's war against Ukraine with the possibility of uh, a military attack uh, by China uh, on Taiwan. Um, do you, do you, think this is a, this two front scenario is really serious and uh, should the United States not actually um, well engage more also uh, at intellectual uh, level with uh, with other partners and uh, decision makers to understand the world uh, that is obviously in a transitionary period of the international relations. And we, of course, don't know exactly the outcome of this transitionary period, whether it will be more multipolar, as uh, the most uh, experts say, or as I, for instance, uh, argue more in a, in a direction of bifurcation, a kind of new systemic bipolarization. So what is your take on that? Well, I don't, I don't see a two-front war because I don't see the US involved in Ukraine at all. Uh, the only thing they're doing is, is provide intelligence. Uh, 
it's been useful and it may be one of the reasons Ukraine has been <coughs> better able to resist the initial onslaught, but I fear it's going to be uh, uh, useless when once the, the main uh, attack comes uh, and when intelligence becomes useless because um, forces, Russian forces are coming from everywhere uh, into Kiev. Um, so I don't see a two-front war. I've been always very cautious about this idea that uh, China and Russia are the same and that China is about to attack Taiwan. Uh, the differences are critical. Um, the kind of uh, personal power that Putin has, Xi Jinping does not have. Whether people want that to be the case or not, that's not the case. There are also all sorts of restraints within the Chinese regime that, that don't exist within the Russian regime. Uh, China decision makers have been very attentive to the way um, the regimes sometimes come to an end through lack of restraint and self-control. And they believe that happened to the Soviet Union, particularly with Afghanistan. They will be looking at Ukraine and you know, they'll think two things. First, you can do this because America is weak. But second, let us think in terms of 20 years and the, the outcome may be that in the next year, Russia is able to occupy large parts of Ukraine, but within 15 or 20 years, the regime as it exists will collapse because of the economic pressure and economic isolation. And maybe we Chinese will, will take over at that point. So they will be very reluctant to go down a path that may be very attractive in the first year, but very catastrophic within 10 or 20. And those are also the lessons that I think Chinese decision makers are drawing from this, uh, that these bold decisions have a potential to uh, go off rails uh, and, and, and be very dangerous for those uh, making them. And the Chinese Communist Party has the plan to rule China for I'm not going to say a thousand years because that brings some <laughs> well-known uh, resonance, but for centuries. <clears throat> and therefore, they're not in a hurry, but they're also concerned about not precipitating systemic crises that brought down the Soviet Union uh, and that may bring down uh, Putin's regime as well. So I think it's different. I'm not saying there won't be an attack on Taiwan because uh, you never know how this crisis develops. But the idea that uh, China and Russia are the same and act the same is, uh, again, as you said, lack of imagination. In your most recent book, uh, Geopolitics for the End Time, From the Pandemic to the Climate uh, Crisis, you provide a sharp vision of our changing world uh, order as COVID and climate breakdown usher in a new survival of the fittest. So how do you anticipate uh, the global order uh, post-pandemic, uh, in the post-pandemic uh, years, and also given the environmental deterioration and um, acceleration of climate change? Well, to put it in one sentence, everything is breaking apart. <laughs> that's the, that's the, 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 the summary because, you know, we're entering really an extraordinary moment in human history where the forces of destruction are so powerful that essentially we no longer have a stable framework of political existence. At, at the global level and therefore also at the national level. If you look at all the crises developing right now, let's take uh, the technology wars, uh, Huawei wars, 
for example, between China and the US. Um, they are very unique historically because they are not about economic competition. They are really rooted in the sense that we now live in a technological world, no longer in the natural world of any kind. That uh, the, the, the relevant landscape is not the physical landscape of territory, but is the network landscape of communications and artificial intelligence. And therefore that whoever builds this world will be in charge in a way that no one ever has been in charge because they will not be controlling the physical territory. They will be building the virtual territory. The anxiety that this creates in decision makers is out of this world, off the charts and explains why you had this uh, uh, intense technological war between China and the, and the US. Then came the pandemic, which really reaffirmed this conviction that uh, we quickly have to migrate to an artificial world of some kind. Uh, our lives became very unnatural. Rules, technological surveillance, uh, vaccines that are different from traditional vaccines that are really the beginning of an era of uh, um, bioengineering of different kinds. You know, the next stage could be a universal vaccine against all coronaviruses. So again, we are migrating to an artificial world, but an artificial world raises the question, who is going to build it? So it's a very geopolitical question because the natural world at least was stabilizing because it had not been built by a geopolitical power. It had been built by God all powerful or something else or the big bang. And it was a kind of a neutral framework that state actors could share but now we're entering a, a world where everything is artificial. And if everything is artificial, everything is being built by someone. And who is building it? And do we want the other guy to build it or do we want to build it ourselves? It's a geopolitics of an existential character. And I think that the current competition between Russia and, and Europe is also of that kind where uh, everything is up for grabs. The order in Europe can be destroyed and rebuilt from scratch and we are thrown into this abyss where suddenly we don't have any fixed coordinates or anything to 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 grab and, and that anything that looks stable so that's the world we live in um as i call it in the title is the end time uh in in, in the precise sense that the end of this natural world uh, and this conviction that we share a natural world is uh, suddenly coming to an end across different dimensions, uh, environmental, political, technological, uh, geopolitical. This is an interesting, interesting explanation since uh, I recall a um, commodity expert who has recently stated we are in uh, in the out-of-everything crisis right now. Do you think that with the war in Europe, the war being waged by Russia against Ukraine, um, given the fact that it's also taking place in the Black Sea um, area, uh, one of the most significant global choke points for food, and also given the fact that uh, Ukraine and uh, Russia are significant uh, wet suppliers, Russia number one. Now I'm thinking of this, uh, you know, in the context of what you've outlined for us, uh, that it might actually accelerate also um, the ongoing uh, other crises that were 
you know, unleashed by the pandemic, supply chains, uh, blockages, uh, delivery of food, uh, global food yeah. index uh, reaching uh, 2011 levels. We know what happened in 2011 when the food index um, was the highest, um, uh, well, reached the highest levels uh, with the Arab Spring. So this kind of war would have contagion, contagion effects on the Middle East, North Africa, other African countries, and even in the world. Do you anticipate this kind of also as seen from the context of uh, what your book is outlining. Do you see such possibility? Yes, uh, we'll add uh, a lot to the current turmoil. Uh, Russia is excluded from, from global trade, at least with Western democracies, that will have a considerable impact. Uh, I, I think the supply chain crisis that was never resolved uh, is now gonna deepen. Um, I don't quite know to what extent uh, the mining, metal, raw material uh, sector has already come under sanctions. Um, it must have come in some ways, but not others, but uh, it may come more fully under sanctions in the next uh, few days and weeks. That will, of course, impact uh, global markets for raw materials. <coughs> and they are already very stressed, uh, with chip production being affected. And therefore, I'm <coughs> recovering from an Omicron case that I got in Ukraine. I apologize for that. It's almost uh, recovered. Uh, and um, uh, therefore, uh, difficult times also for the West. Uh, there was uh, some euphoria over the past few days, but uh, these decisions that I fully support and I want them to be even tougher will have a, will have a cost. Uh, and also, of course, energy and oil which now kind of hang in the balance. Either Russia will uh, retaliate by banning exports of oil and, and, and gas, uh, which is possible, although perhaps not likely. Uh, or since there is now so few sectors left to sanction and oil and gas is one of them, as we start to receive more and more images of uh, shocking atrocities coming from Ukraine, just saw one this morning with the uh, provincial administration building in Kharkiv being bombed by missile. Um, but the atrocities will be numerous and more and more shocking as the days go by. And there will be pressure to include oil and, and gas in, in the sanctions and the economic shock will be profound. Uh, I think we're in a much better position to resist all of this than Russia. Uh, and we will uh, overcome these shocks. Uh, China might be in a, in a, in a, in a good position to, to use this uh, as um, uh, another boost to, to its uh, competitive strength uh, because it may end up having exclusive access to the Russian market in many ways without losing access to Western markets. A very delicate balance, but I, I expect that China will be able to to walk uh, that very delicate path. Uh, final question that you didn't ask me, but it's interesting to raise, is the question of what happens to Europe-China relations now. And I suspect that there will be less appetite in Europe for renewed confrontation. That appetite was growing, developing, but now that we have these existential threats with Russia, most people will think even if they are inclined to, uh, if 
they are inclined to underline our differences with China, they may think that there will be time later to do that and that this is not the proper moment to do it. I'm not advocating for that or, or for the opposite. I'm just describing what I think is gonna be a powerful dynamic that uh, uh, perhaps this will actually be a moment when there'll be a relative uh, warming up of relations between Europe and China. Uh, and if that's the case, then you may end up concluding that, that, that China benefits more than anyone else from the current crisis. Well, this is definitely an open question since um, some of the member states, uh, such as Lithuania, have been very critical of China last year and uh, the relations uh, have been deteriorating, but probably following the presidential election in France, uh, there might be a new push for signing the comprehensive agreement on investment uh, uh, between the European Union and uh, China, but still I think that it will be very much dependent also on the way how China is uh, overtly uh, supporting uh, Russia uh, in uh, its endeavors, in its uh, I think war, it's been ambiguous. Actually. I think it's been ambiguous so far. I anticipate that uh, if, if needed, China will throw in some uh, comments uh, distancing itself from Russia. There was already an interesting comment by Xi Jinping in the call he had with Putin, where he said he was very concerned about the situation in Eastern Ukraine. This is the Chinese way of communicating these things. Putin had just recognized the two oblasts as independent. So when he refers to them as Eastern Ukraine, Xi Jinping is uh, subtly indicating that he does not agree with the recognition. Uh, Usually there's no appetite in the West to pick up these things. And as I said, there's more appetite to group China and Russia together. But uh, I think we'll see a little bit of that. I don't think CAI, the Comprehensive Agreement on Investment will return, uh, but that's not the priority now. Um, but I also don't expect some of these acute confrontations like the Lithuanian uh, one to, to survive much longer because even Lithuania, I would imagine, is now fully focused on the grave security crisis on, on its borders, uh, also involving Belarus. The Down of Eurasia uh, came out in 2018, uh, Belt and Road 2019, uh, History Has Begun 2020, Geopolitics for the End Time 2021. What will be the topic of your new book uh, for 2022? Do you have already plans? for a new book? That would yes, be my final a, there question. Was a, there was a contract and there was some initial work on a book on geopolitics and technology. That's where I was planning to go. Uh, some people have reached out asking if I wanted to write a book on this, on this crisis. Um, usually I find it very difficult to resist writing on the, on the topic of the day. Uh, and this is very consequential, so I don't know what to to see. Uh, Dawn of Eurasia already um, talks about many of the things that are, I think are behind the current crisis. So I'm not completely convinced uh, that uh, I need to, to redo all that uh, and might prefer to turn to other topics. <laughs> well, 
I wish you good luck with uh, this uh, highly exciting topic of uh, geopolitics and technology. Uh, meet the fourth uh, industrial revolution. Technology is uh, and technological breakthroughs will be once again decisive in the competition between global and great powers. So definitely this is going to be a very interesting topic for um, for the listeners, the viewers who also have read your books and will be uh, will be uh, eager to read also your new book. And uh, if you want to follow uh, Bruno, you can find him also on social media, on Twitter under at Massage Bruno. Um, thank you very much for being with me. Uh, dear Bruno, and uh, I also want to thank uh, the podcast producer, Bharat Farah, uh, which is in one of India's leading uh, podcast uh, producers for uh, politics, policy and society, uh, for making this uh, episode uh, possible. It was a pleasure, Valina. Until next time, until we meet in person. Have a always day. a pleasure. Yes, you've always... Welcome in Vienna, of course. Thank you very much. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Bharatvarta podcast. If you want to see more content like this, then don't forget to subscribe to our channel. We started Bharatvarta to facilitate long-form discussions on politics, policy, and culture. We don't necessarily endorse anything that was said in this episode. If you wish to offer us feedback, do reach out to us on social media. We are at Bharatvarta on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You could also get in touch with us on our website, www.bharatvarta.in. The links are in the description below. Until next time, stay safe, take care, and jai.